Okay, welcome back to our afternoon tea time question and answer series here in the virtual Birkin Tea Room. Uh, let's see, today is the fifth day of the fifth full day of the, our, our retreat. And last night, Ajahn gave a talk on the second section of the Satipatthana Sutta, um, largely talking to the contemplation uh, and mindfulness of Vedana or feelings, as it's often translated. So, and we have a few questions submitted from uh, people through the question and answer form. And just as a reminder, that's generally in the description of these videos. If you want to submit a question for one of these sessions, I'll be hosting another one on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, Sunday, we'll have a very special uh, recorded session uh, of questions with Ajahn Sona from the uh, Pacific Hermitage Retreatants. So a couple more days to take questions. Um, so I see a few people with their hands up. Um, let's go to Bob first from Portland. Mm, hi, Bob. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, and I finally got myself unmuted. Okay. Uh, I was interested uh, last night when Ajahn talked about Sariputta uh, being really, really good at being able to see feelings, both as uh, positive or negative or neither. Mm -hmm. And I, I came away from the talk with not a very good sense of how I might approach using feelings as a meditation object. And I wondered if that looking at them in that three, in those three ways was a piece of what might be involved in that. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and even though like, sorry, Puta was very, uh, adept, I mean, it's like foremost in wisdom. So you can understand like somebody is very discerning. I mean, they they see the limits of model or even sort of how things bleed over various um, categorizations because reality is always fuller than the models that we make for it. And um, this concept of these teachings as ways of modeling our experiences is something I find very useful. So, and with the contemplation of uh, Vedana, just the mere <clears throat> attempt to classify, just in the same way that we, we try to, to notice and apply our discernment to sort of classify um, various intentions as skillful or unskillful. Um, we're, we're just directing the mind with mindfulness to uh, an object um, of the senses. So this can be a meditation object, or you can practice this more kind of globally. Um, I spoke a little bit about this this morning, but um, integrating this with body awareness and contemplation of the body can be uh, very good. You can focus on just a particular part of the body. I remember sometimes Ajahn Samedo in some of his talks referring to picking rather neglected parts of his body to do a contemplation like this. Like, for instance, he would just direct attention to some patch of skin on the back of his hand or his 
pinky finger or something, um, something that we don't often sort of bring into consciousness unless there was like an intense wound there or something like that. And then just picking, picking a place in the body and, and watching over that, establishing mindfulness, watching over that, uh, interested and sensitive to the uh, arising of dukkha vedana, painful feeling, sukha vedana, pleasant feeling, or a dukkha masukha, uh, neither pleasant nor painful feeling. Um, and it's, it's just a very simple sort of yet powerful meditation to sort of establish sort of mindfulness and, and watch. Uh, one, it, you know, so much of, of, of feeling is somewhere in this kind of neutral zone. And Ajahn talked about how that can be colored by what is preceding it. And, and also maybe like what we want or what we expect. Um, ultimately, volition. And desire plays a big role in this. Uh, so, and then you just merely sort of set up your your awareness and sort of contemplate that. There are other styles where people are kind of moving their awareness through the body, maybe um, come up with some sim- simple way to classify the body or a pattern to sort of go through scanning the body and sort of checking in at the various points of the body. And this could be very global, you know, you just kind of sort of pay attention to the face or the head. Sensitive to like, are there pleasant or unpleasant sensations, touch sensations arising there? And then you can move through each of the limbs, uh, the torso, the one leg, the other leg, all the way down to the hands, the feet, and then start over. Or you could just establish it in one place on the body. You can establish it on the breath. Um, you can, it, it, it's, it's good to practice this with this in a very sort of formal way to strengthen one's ability to do this and to really uh, set, set up the ability just to, to really tune into like, this is all I care about. And so I'm really just trying to watch over the, sensations arising, sense contact arising, and discern um, what's, what's coming up, what's painful, what's pleasant, what's neutral. Uh, and we, we learn a lot about how sense contact works and how we respond to that, um, how we uh, make a problem about that, how we're invested in that, um, especially with pleasant and painful feelings. Um, uh, we notice the three characteristics manifesting themselves as we try to tune into that uh, with great lucidity and clarity. You see how fleeting and ephemeral they are. Um, in particular, investigating uh, painful and pleasant sensations, it's, it's quite notable how it's, it's not like this solid, durable sort of single signal, yet the way we create stories in our mind um, creates this sense of permanence that's there. Like you spent the day at Disneyland or something and it was wonderful. Like, and for sure there was probably all kinds of pleasant moments during that, but it wasn't this kind of long 
four hour, six hour, however much time people spend at Disneyland, unmitigated stream of pleasant sensations. Um, yet eventually, because we're we're looking for a pleasant day and pleasant memories like that, we we create a story, and that's kind of how we remember it. And even pain that we experience is not a solid, enduring, unceasing signal of pain. And by watching that, we see uh, how it's it's always changing, sometimes intensifying, intensifying, backing off. There's space. There's neutral feelings mixed in there. There's pleasant feelings arising mixed in there. Buddha's conception of mind is sense contact meets sense objects. Consciousness arises. Um, and you want to be uh, watching for that uh, as you're doing this kind of contemplation. It's not me experiencing pain. It's like sense contact meets sense object. Consciousness arises. And that consciousness has the affect of pain, has the affect of neutral feeling, has the affect of pleasant feeling. Um, and I, I find it very liberating um, having studied that. You know, one, there's, there's this kind of acceptance that comes like, there's nothing wrong with this. this. This is like an information sort of system for the body. This is the way it is. This is inevitable that we're going to be experiencing some things as painful, neutral, pleasant. Um, I don't know why, but an image that that has always kind of stuck with me is it's just like a light switch that has three positions, and it's got to be in one of three positions. And uh, I can make a big deal about it. Um, or I can just accept that it's got to be in one of these three positions and it can't be stuck in pleasant for, from now and throughout the rest of my life. And it's can't be stuck in pain and it can't be stuck in the neutral position. It's, there's just an endless, almost unfathomable stream of sense contact that one experiences as a human being. And based on our comic conditioning, uh, based on, our desires based on our preferences. Um, these, this affect kind of comes up with sense experience. So those are a few thoughts about how to uh, put it into practice. Um, okay. Th thank you, Ajahn. Sure. Let's see. Uh, Shelly, you had your hand up. Please go ahead. Oh, yes, I did. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, the, uh, the Wadeness, it's, really interesting and the first time i heard that that was very useful because i was wondering well when am i going to see this dukkha could i see dukkha everywhere anyway putting it in one of the, the uh three buckets whatever you're experiencing is very helpful hmm. um now i can explain this okay so i was sitting this afternoon and my roommate decided to clean the roof <laughs> and with a leaf blower and a high-powered hose. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it was interesting to see, to feel, okay, at first it was clearly dukkha, and then it drifted into neutral, and I never went in, I never saw any sukkah out of it my my response but i literally 
uh, it just kind of, it went away. Mm. It went away. And since you've pointed out that probably I don't go into jhana, <laughs> I don't know where it went. But then, then the sound changed and I, and it sounded like there, maybe there was water dripping into the zendo. And then suddenly I was bothered and I thought, well, that was interesting. Um, cause maybe I had to do something. There should be something to be done. So, mm -hmm. so Shelley should do something. And, but I let that lie for a minute thinking, no, no, there, I had to think it through. I know there's no holes in the roof of the zendo. Um, but here's the key. Here's the key to the question. So you see neutral or dukkha or sukha. So if the whole point of all and everything is to reduce the dukkha, mm -hmm. my mind wants to go, okay, so let me put into a dhamma bucket. Um, so self, typically it's, you know, some kind of craving. It's, you know, craving to be or not to be. Um, and a very common one is self. I, you know, Shelley is the kind of person who takes care of something. I mean, that would be a self arising, not necessarily an unskillful one. Mm -hmm. In that case, <laughs> that example. Um, but I'm not sure you see where I'm going with this. There's that second part of doing something with the dukkha or the sukha. Speci well, more specifically, the dukkha. Sukha is fine. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, Sukha caused a problem too. What? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, let's 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 zoom back out to sort of our our bigger frame of like why is it that we engage in these practices, and it's like to 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 understand the mind and how it is that we create suffering, uh, and you know, with the mm, engagement of the Satipatthana, we're we're trying to exercise right effort to arouse skillful states of mind and abandon unskillful states of mind. So sometimes just the mere apprehension of this, like through sati and, uh, and, and wisdom, like understanding, oh, this is just dukkha vedana. Like it's not news that uh, a leaf blower is a painful thing to listen to for most people. Um, you know, most people probably don't experience sukha, vedna, when they hear a leaf blower going. Um, and it's it's just amazing, like, I, sometimes even just mindfulness that we, we're, we are experiencing suffering has the ability to sort of shift us out of the second arrow or creating some extra sort of sense of, like, this shouldn't be. You know, we create this kind of story about what should be, what shouldn't be, um, what's right, what's wrong, what I should experience, what I shouldn't experience, what I want, like, the, you know, I, which I sum up as the desire structures. Um, you know, so if I was sitting in that zendo and I dedicated this time for retreat or something, I could cre easily kind of create this kind of story of, oh my God, why now? Or, isn't he thinking about what I'm doing and how that might affect me? <laughs> um, and and a lot of it sort of is based on this conception that we have of what it is that we serve, what we should be expecting, what we want. Uh, but sometimes it's just this kind of more primal raw reaction to 
uh, Dukkha Vedana based on a sense kind of impression that's that's impacting upon us. And we don't want it. Like we we have this default preference to maximize Sukha Vedana and not be in contact with that, which is Dukkha Vedana. And sometimes that makes us irritated. It makes us angry. Um, so sometimes just being able to sort of mindfully apprehend, oh, this is painful sound is enough to stop the generation of some frame or some story or some sort of sense of self that that leads to a compounding uh, of dukkha or the generation of dukkha based on what is merely just dukkha vedana. Uh, you know, if I heard and thought maybe it was leaking, I feel like, oh, what now? You know, am I going to have to deal with this? Do I have to interrupt my meditation to start tearing apart the the room here or the hall to see if there's a leak and and then what's that going to lead to? You know, the mind can start to create a story of something that is unwished for and unwanted and start generating suffering. And usually there's desire, some sense of self, and a, a generation of dukkha. Uh-huh. So, you know, these these things and these frames of reference, these ways of attending to our experience that are outlined here in the Satipatthana Sutta, um, if developed and cultivated, um, they really allow us a latitude to sort of stop suffering cold, uh, to not slip into anger, aversion, and ill will, um, which is normally like where someone goes when they meet Dukkha Vedana uh, or when they're not getting what one wants. So... Yeah, agreed. So, okay, very good. I'll move on to another question here. Jay? Hi, Jay. Ajahn. Thanks, thanks for taking my question. Yeah. Um, last night during Ajahn's talk, uh, he made a comment, if I got it correctly, he, he was saying that there is always um, a feeling tone that's associated with um, ideas or memories, thoughts of the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as somebody who watches my mind slip off to those things, you know, quite a bit, it's, it just struck me that that could be a powerful, um, you, you know, way of addressing the, the, the connection between my mind and things that preoccupy me. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering whether you have any thoughts on that as a, a way of practice. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a powerful one, and uh, and it's it's sometimes one that isn't so obvious to one when they first encounter this teaching. Like somehow they they think more of just the five senses, like sight and sound, and smell and taste and touch, and some sometimes they don't they've they've never thought of perception, emotion, and cognition or thought formations in the same way. Yeah, but they but they do have this very same sort of feature of being sukha or dukkha, being pleasurable or unpleasant. And um, and I know this is something I've had to work with a lot. Um, you know, I I love to read, I love to learn, I love various types of uh, conversations that I have with people. Uh, I like creating stories. Uh, I 
I spent a great deal of my life pursuing art and um, a lot of the, of my addiction was kind of bound up with the pleasures of those things. Uh, it's pleasant. It tickles the brain to be in the presence of uh, some sort of new intellectual learning or insight um, or to be engaged in um, certain types of thoughts or ideas or an exploration of ideas. Um, and it's like any of the mm, sense pleasures that one sort of is exposed to. It's, uh, you know, ultimately not a great refuge um, because it's elusive. It's something uh, beyond our control. It's very ephemeral. It's conditioned. And, and ultimately it's, it's unsatisfactory, even though it might be um, full of potential pleasant moments. So now Ajahn did talk about what, you know, in talking about contemplation of the body, he did talk about why that's such a suitable place to sort of start because the body is mm, slower, more coarse, doesn't change as fast where the mind is very sort of ephemeral. So, you know, I always include the mind when introducing or talking about this kind of practice of contemplating Vedana, but to get a sense for it, it's probably best to start off with the body um, because it's, it's easier to sort of apprehend what's going on with the senses. Like ideas are so sticky. Um, so, you know, we can build up a lot of strength by trying to t attend to um, touch sensations, especially in the body feelings of pain and pleasure in the body, um, touch sensations in the body, um, and, and then, you know, work on the various sort of senses. And because most of us have this more global commitment to sort of practice, um, that, will, that will spill over into the contemplation of the mind. And when the mind's very um, still and, and lucid, then it's a lot easier to sort of um, investigate this dimension of, of mental experience, um, but also like just more generally or globally in our lives, um, this teaching will speak to us and it will inform us. Um, I don't know how many times I've been in the midst of a conversation and there's painful words being expressed or ideas which I find displeasing. And through having invested time in cultivating this practice, sometimes that way of apprehending or uh, mindfully receiving the experience that's going on comes up and adds as a protection. It's like, oh, this is, this is an unbeautiful perception. This is an unbeautiful thought. Uh, this is a painful thought. This is a pleasant emotion. This is a painful emotion. Uh, so it, it applies to all of that. So, and with thought, you know, principally, I would say you can include perceptions and emotions and thoughts themselves, ideas in that. So let's see, Sarah. Hi, Ajahn. Hi. Um, I'm wondering if, if one's practicing withdrawal of the senses, mm. and so the sense organ doesn't hook on to the sense object, mm -hmm. does that... Does that mean that consciousness doesn't arise? Um, only in a very 
deep sort of, <laughs> I mean, there is a, a, a profound sort of state that's called neither consciousness nor non-consciousness. So it's hard for consciousness not to arise on, on something. Um, there's always some sort of sense contact going on as long as we're alive. So, uh, and I, I'm not sure I, I completely follow the, the logic of the question. Like, are we like in, in the practices, it's like more, the encouragement is more to sort of investigate sort of how, how this kind of feeds into our experience. But I guess it just came up uh, when you were describing um yeah, sort of when those two things meet and then consciousness arises. So I was just mm. um, curious in that I've been, you know, just working on withdrawal of the senses. So I just wondered what's going on when um, the sense organ doesn't hook into a sense object. So maybe it's not super relevant and that's okay. <laughs> well, it happens. It happens so fast, so frequently and so fast. It's like consciousness is... It, you know, we, I think uh, a modern conception of consciousness is this thing that we are endowed with that kind of continues in some unbroken way until we die. But the Buddhist sort of use of this word consciousness and Buddhist model of consciousness is that uh, it's arising sort of very quickly, very fast, based on sense impressions. And, you know, there's so many billions of sense impressions that are bombarding us at any one moment that it's hard to see a ceasing of consciousness there. Uh, and we're, we're only dimly aware of certain things based on our comma, based on our volition, based on our desire and intentions. So, um, so the short answer would be consciousness doesn't, cease a normal experience um uh, although in 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 the briefest moment like uh, nanoseconds um and there's all these other consciousnesses arising so charles go ahead uh, thank you ajahn um i i found in my sits today uh occasions when <clears throat> uh, abiding with awareness of the breath and inclining towards uh, cultivating joy as, as ajahn sona has uh, instructed uh, has been in a sense a sort of sustaining uh, quality of that, that sit. And uh, at other times, in very sharp contrast, I find such uh, storms and sometimes deep pain um, that doesn't even seem to be positional in nature. And I'm trying to experiment with going to the other techniques, uh, contemplating the elements, uh, the components, or uh, just, just redirecting the mind in some way or trying to stay with the breath. And I find there's just such a sharp contrast. Sometimes I'm kind of at a loss as to how to respond. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that sounds like the life of a practitioner. Um, I mean, we, despite our best efforts, I mean, we have all kinds of um, emotional and cognitive habits and who knows how much comma behind us. And, um, it takes just kind of patience and fortitude to sort of uh, bear with it. And, you know, constantly what we're trying to do is, is just put forth right effort to sort of respond in the most skillful way to what it is that our experiences 
is is bringing up like what what's coming up for us and uh, it's a bit especially at first uh, meaning like for many years of practice it's a bit like launching out on the open ocean and sometimes it's uh, smooth seas and the conditions are with you and you feel like everything's in control uh, you know where you want to go the conditions are favorable and you're and you, you can go there. And then there's days where you just can't get anything to work the way you would expect it, like it to work. Uh, but all along, um, you want to return to this model of just putting forth right effort and uh, choosing practice and applying yourself in the best way you can to sort of uh, resolve unskillful states of mind and arouse skillful states of mind. So, yeah. Let's go to Mike from Portland next. Hi, Ajahn. Um, hi. hi. Um, my question is about the interaction of right effort and this weight in a practice, specifically with regard to the mind. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say you notice something that comes up and, and you identify it as pleasurable, but maybe skillful. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that you maybe want to hop on that bus and follow it? Or is this just a noting exercise? I guess I'm just looking for some clarification on engaging kind of um, supporting those, those wholesome states that have, arid, that have arisen, you know, should you be amplifying those? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is absolutely like, um, you know, and that's part of right effort. I think Ajahn touched on this in his talk last night too. Um, in in short, he was referencing this kind of question that comes up sometimes, like aren't aren't the jhanas um, just pleasant states of mind? And and uh, he brings up this encouragement the buddha says they're plausible states of mind that are to be cultivated and not to be feared um and so that's like a very strong form of of what you're asking about here but yeah pleasurable like skillful pleasurable sort of conditions of mind are not only to be aroused they're to be nurtured uh maintained uh strengthened developed um they have great kind of leverage in building the conditions of mind that help um, bring about happiness in the here and now and also help us develop our practice. So, um, you know, if, if you're I'm very clear that there's like a, a skillful sort of pleasurable state of mind, then get behind it. And that could be, you know, uh, a thought of generosity. It can be delighting in generosity that's been done or a good deed that's been done. It could be um, the emotion of goodwill, loving kindness directed towards self or others. Uh, it could be the bliss and peace of meditation, uh, a moment of joy and serenity, like any of the wholesome states of mind. Um, they're to be cultivated, maintained, strengthened, and developed not just uh, watched. So, uh, yeah, Joan from Bend. Hi, Arjun. 
Hi. Um, yeah, I've been sitting here through this half hour debating about whether to say this or not, but I just, uh, it, it's just, it's partly an appreciation uh, for the teachings that we've been receiving and also for this, having this retreat experience of the uh, puja in the morning and in the evening and the chanting of the traditional verses um, since we've moved to Bend, we haven't done that very much as we did when we were in Portland and attending Portland Friends of the Dhamma. But um, so it's been nice. And it just is particularly that salutation uh, to the Triple Jam uh, with bringing up, you know, the uh, Anatta, Anicca and uh, Dukkha. Uh-huh. And um, so I was out uh, walking this afternoon, doing some walking meditation and uh as can be typical for me my mind or this i notice the mind uh wanting to what am i supposed to do you know asking kind of fretting you know yeah. what am i supposed to do while i'm walking and what's right you know, should i do this or should i do this should i think about this or should i think about and then all of a sudden i had been working with the not self and previously and so i just said i heard either your voice or ajahn sona's voice i don't know just say it's about training the mind and being rid of the hindrances and i could see that i was wanting mm-hmm. and that that wanting was painful mm-hmm. and so i said well there's really not a self here i say so i just went through the khandas not self not self you know body feeling um, perception, etc., and um, and and sometimes I said this is a training the mind, and there's not a self in there. There's not a self thinking, or you know, I don't know how it went exactly, but right. it was like it just it the thoughts just went away when I you know, like when I recognized that that wanting to be doing something, wanting to know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. all that striving was painful. Yeah. And um, it it calmed down, and I could imagine just training, like training a puppy, you know, to sit, to lay still, you know, to move towards stillness. So I was able to walk and continue to work with Anatta um, in this walking, and um, it was probably one of the better walking experiences that I that I've had in a while. In in uh, so I. I appreciate even through these teachings being about the Satipatthana, there's this thread that has been being brought through about the three characteristics mm-hmm. and that particularly the Anatta is, is I'm feeling that one this time. And um, uh, I noticed Scott was reading the Anatta Laka, Lakana Sutta. Is that how mm-hmm. you said it? Yeah. The Anatta Lakana Sutta. Yeah, we were talking about that yesterday. Yeah, so I picked that up and read through that, and um, so is working with that suda, uh, like reading through it or memorizing it, or is is that going to be really that? I I know that's got to be skillful means, but is there a way of uh, working that with that? with for me as a lay practitioner to um strengthen this sense of of anatta sure yeah 
Well, thank you. Um, that's nice to hear the that you're enjoying that. Um, I'm enjoying offering it. Um, I get a lot out of it as well, and it's quite nice to see when we're doing the chanting. Sometimes in the morning or the evening, there's as many as 250 other people joining in. We can only fit about 10 in our hall, so that's quite nice that other people are exploring that and finding it useful. That sutta that you're referencing that we chant, the um, salutation to the triple gem, the, which is the longer one at the end of our morning recitation. Um, I love that. And for the same reason, because it has this wisdom element in there where that's very close to, you know, the teaching that we find in the uh, discourse on non-self, the Anatalakana Sutta, which is the, it's taken to be the second of the three cardinal suttas. And it's there in our chanting book in volume two. And it's, that's also something that we chant in our monastery, but it's, you know, I mean, chanting has many dimensions to it. And, and one is it, it strengthens our sati. It strengthens our mindfulness and our ability to bring to mind and to remember those teachings. And for people like yourself who have been in, engaged in Dhamma practice for a long time, there is some sort of accumulation of uh, sensitivity and insight into these aspects of Dhamma. And, um, but we get distracted and we forget them. So like a, a daily recitation or a regular recitation like that, and that's right there in our morning recitation. So that is something that day in and day out um, we're returning to and reciting. And it becomes like this very um, well-exercised uh, mental sort of muscle. It's always kind of there, ready at hand in the background to reflect on and to uh, bring to the fore to sort of examine sort of our experience. And uh, as a suggestion for practicing it, I mean, you can just read, memorize, even chant the Anattalakana Sutta itself, but even just staying with what's there in the salutation of the Triple Gem is, is quite valuable. Um, and it's one of my absolute favorite teachings because contemplation of three characteristics and the contemplation of three characteristics um, as they relate to the five khandhas, which is really the heart of that sutta, is something that I've always found um, very useful uh, for for developing um, uh, con contemplation. So, and just to know, you know, when you're out uh, walking like that, the, the thing you were describing, it's like dukkha arises with the sense of self and like there's some desire for to have a sense of certainty that you're using your time well, or you're practicing in a particular way, or there could be a desire like to be free from doubt about, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, and in a moment like that, sometimes evoking these things can be very helpful. Just, just pay attention to the walking and just enjoy exploring, you know, as we talked about earlier, feeling the body kind of move through space. And there's a way that we can do that and invoke a perception of um, just the body moving through space rather than me, my body moving through space or me doing this and even me doing the practice. Like in some sense, the, we, get, we get in our own way. Um, and even though it's wholesome and skillful and good to engage in practice to whatever extent it kind of 
there's a lot of self in it. Um, there's, we're, we're putting some kind of obstacles in our way. So let's see. I thought I saw one more hand, but if there's no more questions in the, um, in the Zoom room, that we do have a couple that came in and I can turn to those. Check how we're doing for time here. Okay, well, let's read uh, a couple of the questions that came in through the form. This one is from Seppi in Blaine, USA. I'm wondering if that's Blaine, Washington. But I appreciated Sona's description of the monkey mind and how it relates directly to the never-ending chasing of sensory and thought happiness, which cannot be maintained. Considering samadhi is intrinsically impermanent, how does practice and meditative pleasure differ from the attachment and chasing of sensory and thought pleasures? Is it not attachment to chasing, swinging towards the next fruit of the practice, the next moment of bliss, samadhi, or entry into the jhanic realms? So, uh, yeah, well, there can be some attachment there. But as Ajahn sort of mentioned, uh, the Buddha says, this is a pleasure that is not to be feared. Um, it is uh, an integral part of the path, and it's part of the medicine that cures all ills and should be kind of pursued. In other places, he he talks about, uh, let's see, the, part of the question here is, and how does it relate? Um, how does it differ? And um, you know, the Buddha acknowledges that even even the states of jhana are conditioned, uh, especially the rupa jhanas. Um, they're conditioned, so yes, they do come and go, and they're not a completely secure sort of refuge but they are uh, inherently skillful, um, especially when cultivated in service of the path, sama samadhi. And they're the highest of conditioned pleasures, but they are beneficial, they are blameless, they are uh, to be cultivated, to be enjoyed. And even after his enlightenment, the Buddha spent the rest of his life devoting certain amount of his day, certain amount of his time to um, dwelling in those states of mind. Um, and, you know, if we reflect on what it means to be a Buddha and how he describes his experience, those states can certainly be practiced without attachment. Uh, in maybe cultivating them, there's a way that we can attach them, but sort of like practically speaking, if one's really developing sama samadhi and the path, um, those states can be developed with, without um, obstructive attachment, one can say. Uh, and part of what makes them high or something is they're, they're so wholesome. Think about what it is that is truly good or truly wholesome. Um, it's not some just sort of objective classification. Like that which is evil, unskillful, unwholesome, 
in, in a Buddhist context, but maybe even more broadly, is that which undermines well-being, undermines human happiness and flourishing. That's why we call it bad. That's why we call it evil. That's why we call it unskillful. Um, because it's inimical to the desire of us, the desire of humans and human societies to be happy and to and and well. Uh, it undermines it. It's a danger. It erodes it. It erodes the foundation for happiness and well-being. And that which is skillful um, strengthens the foundation and the conditions for human flourishing and well-being. Uh, and uh, samadhi is a very powerful, very skillful condition for uh, fostering sort of well-being and, and, and propelling the path of practice kind of forward. So hope that addresses your concern there, um, Seppi. Next, we'll move to a question from Kathy in Fernie, Canada. Last evening's Dhamma talk with Ajahn Sona deeply affected me. Seeing neutral feelings having a positive quality as they follow negative feelings and having a negative quality as they follow positive feelings was a new perspective for me. As well, I found interesting his explanation of how some people tend to seek positive sensory experiences and others tend to seek positive intellectual experiences and how the inevitable transition out of these positive experiences slash feelings lead to negatively tinged neutral feelings, dissatisfaction. I hope my understanding is correct. I realize that I often experience great dissatisfaction, a sense of loss or apathy or irrit irritability following an intellectual or creative experience, particularly if I do not have opportunities after the experience to share, which is a way to extend the experience, I suppose. I would appreciate some guidance for dealing with this. So, well, uh, yeah, very well written, Kathy. And, um, yeah, the relativeness, perception in general, like not even just talking about feelings, but perception uh, or relative, relativity sort of really shapes how it is that we perceive things. Um, you know, you never, you never appreciate just your normal health as much as you do after you're coming back to it after a bout of sickness or illness. The thing that you normally take for granted and um, even the state that you're experiencing sometimes with longing for even better health or, you know, uh, uh, bodily experience that's better than your normal experience. If you return to it from a period of illness, you're so grateful. You know, you're just after the flu has abated and your headache is gone and the body doesn't ache, you have your normal sense of energy back after your sinus is clear and you can just, you wake up that, that first morning unobstructed and able to breathe, it feels pleasurable. It's, and some of that is just that juxtaposition of sense experience um, 
it's interesting what you're describing here um, with the dissatisfaction that arises. And, you know, that is part of the, uh, the trap, I guess, of much of our sense of well-being and happiness being bound up with um, sense pleasures. And it's probably hard for someone who hasn't really noticed this in any great depth to sort of relate to. Like, what could be, what's the harm in um, being able to delight in beautiful ideas and beautiful experiences, um, you know, especially intellectual or creative experiences. And for most people, they see that as the highest form of happiness. Uh, but if one examines their experience a little more closely, I mean, those things are fleeting and hard to attain. You know, in my youth, I studied art and I don't know how many times I, you know, would go to um, some performance or a museum or a gallery or something like this. And sometimes even to see some very uh, famous artist, famous show that I've been looking forward to. And somehow the conditions just weren't coming together. And I would, I'd be so dissatisfied. So <laughs> filled with such frustration and, and despair sometimes because um, I was anticipating and looking forward to having my, my intellect and my creativity sort of um, stimulated in some way and connecting with the pleasure that I once had. And I remember just feeling at that point in my life, this was in my late teens, early twenties, just how out of control it was. Like, you know, how you can't manufacture that. It's like some days you go to the gallery and it's just not there. You know, you finally get, to the Picasso Museum in Paris or the Louvre or, <laughs> or the Met or some sort of famous place. And like, um, it's fleeting. It's ephemeral. It's kind of beyond our control. And sometimes even the, the best of experiences just kind of set us up with this very dependent relationship. Like we know it is possible to feel great pleasure. Um, but yet it's it's not something that's that's ever fully uh, under our control and so you know it's this is part of the the liability in that being um, a big part of our dependency for happiness and well-being and pleasure in the world it's like we're investing in our some of the language you use taking refuge in those things um that are not self they're not me they're not mine they're not durable they're not dependable they're not secure um, and the Buddha talks uh, uh, in relationship to sense pleasure, and he talks about what is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape. Um, and, you know, the, the gratification is they're pleasant. Um, the danger is they're uh, ephemeral, unreliable, ultimately unsatisfactory. Like they never, they never truly satisfy us, no matter how pleasant they are. Um, and they're not self. And so much of what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about not self is like, it's not something that you own, not something that you control. And that, that, um, that 
the because it's beyond our control and because we're kind of expecting or we're invested in finding pleasure and happiness there uh, ultimately it's it's extra frustrating or or unsatisfactory uh, sometimes I think about the the experience that you described is kind of like a sensual hangover. Sometimes you have really beautiful sort of experience. And then the fading of it, the loss of it or something, does leave us feeling a little extra bereft. And um, it's a very interesting kind of emotional experience. Um, sometimes it's it's like boredom, um, a, it's tinged with this separation from the loved or separation from the liked. Um, sometimes maybe it's it's even a, a kind of sadness that sense pleasures are a good day or a wonderful experience can't be held. It can't be owned. It can't last. Uh, so, and the escape from that is sort of realizing, you know, what the extent of the pleasure is, what the danger is, and then knowing what the uh, escape is. And uh, the escape is um, understanding the limitations of that and developing more sublime and durable forms of, of happiness and well-being. And um, you know, put another way, freeing, freeing our need to feed on these things and our uh, addiction to finding um, happiness in the sense realm and the cultivation of the path kind of supports that in a way that's very profound. So let's see, we're just about out of time. I have two more here. This sounds like a, a bit more of a comment, but I'll, I'll, I'll read it out. And maybe we'll conclude with that for today. This is from Marilyn from Canada. We often are advised to make our minds like earth and that the earth does not respond to insults like dirt, fire, and garbage that we throw on it. It's just there, solid and stable, enduring everything. I wonder about more recent events with the earth and all the damage we as humans have caused it with drilling, fracking, plastics, chemicals, and so on. It seemed as though the earth was not so solid after all. It seemed to be breaking down with earthquakes, rock slides, sinkholes, hurricanes, massive fires, and tsunamis. At first I wondered if maybe the Buddha couldn't see this far ahead and how much damage people would be capable of. Now I'm thinking the earth is still solid, and calmly flicking those pesky humans as if they are flies on a horse's backside. Earth is still solid. Humans are the impermanent. Does this make sense? Well, kind of. Um, I don't think of the earth as flicking humans off. It's still just the earth, and um, it endures. Um, and not only are humans impermanent, Earth is impermanent. This solar system is impermanent. Uh, all conditioned things are impermanent. So, um, so anyways, interesting contemplation there from Marilyn. 
So we have uh, two that we didn't get to today. I'll see if I can carry those forward tomorrow. But that's all we have time for today. Um, thank you all for your good questions. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow at uh, 4 p.m. for our next tea time. And uh, chanting again at 7 p.m. And Ajahn's sixth talk, I believe it is. I sometimes have a hard time counting. Um, we'll premiere tonight at uh, 8.15 again. So thank you and have a good rest of the day.